it's okay. Hey, good morning, everybody. I'm glad you're here. If you have a Bible, go ahead and find Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We want to get started right on time because we have a lot to cover, and I want to give you some time to discuss this in your groups, so I will do my best to get through this material, but uh, there's just a little bit more than maybe the last couple of weeks. So um, as you're finding Ephesians 1, I want you to know I have been praying for you this week. I've been praying for you specifically as students. There's a lot of things kicking up in your life. I mean, we're a couple weeks into school now, but there's more events, more rhythms, more things with sports, with school, with church. Your schedules are filling up quickly, and I know that it can be overwhelming. So I've been praying that each of you would know the love of God, that, that your standing before God is not based on how many things you're doing in a week. It's not based on how many achievements you can accomplish this year, but instead that you would be known as someone who is steadfast in your faithfulness to him above all else, more than your schedule, more than the, the pull that this world has on us, that you'd be faithful to Jesus, that you'd be more faithful to Jesus than you are faithful in trying to keep up appearances or trying to go after worldly success or material gain or pleasure or anything else. Today, we have before us Paul's letter to the Ephesians, but our section this morning is a prayer. So in verses 15 through 23, you're going to see Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus, and he's praying by the Spirit for us. Paul is praying for a church that's surrounded by hardship, surrounded by persecution, surrounded by the fact that they are the minority in most senses in their culture. So today we're going to see Paul's reasons for praying and the needs that he believes the church actually needs. And then we're going to do a little rabbit trail that Paul goes off on the power of God in the church. So uh, we've got a lot to cover. Let's open up our text and start in verse 14. 15, sorry, 15. For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray together before we go any further. Oh God in heaven, you delight in making your word effective and powerful, and it will always accomplish your intentions. When your word is proclaimed, you are at work. And so Lord, I pray that this morning would be no exception, that in the hearts of our students, in my heart, in the hearts of our leaders, you would be at work as we come to grips with the reality of this text the reality of the gospel, and how the truth of your word spurs us on to love and to faithfulness, to growth. Lord, we need you. We come before you now desperate that you would work among us because we cannot do this work on our own. 
So we ask that you would, by your grace, supply our every need for your glory and for our good. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, three sections this morning that we're going to be talking about in this text. The first is Paul's praise and gratitude. Paul starts off this passage by worshiping and by being grateful and thankful. You look at verses 15 and 16. He's saying, for this reason, because he's heard of their faith and the love in the Lord Jesus and their love, he doesn't cease to give thanks to God, remembering him, them in their prayers. So he's, when he goes to pray, when he goes to praise God privately in worship, he is stirred up to praise, stirred up to thanksgiving because of this church in Ephesus. After explaining the truth of the gospel through the work of the Trinity last week, Paul now moves into the prayer for the believers. And he gives two big reasons for why he can praise God and why he can thank God for the church in Ephesus. He says that the church in Ephesus is known for their faith in the Lord Jesus and known for their love toward all the saints. So faith in the Lord Jesus, we sometimes think about that word faith as the, the act of believing in Jesus, and that's exactly what that means. But here, it has a broader sense. It's the, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of Jesus, the knowledge of his word, that they're growing in their faith, they're growing in their doctrine, they're growing in their understanding of what it means to be a Christian. But not just their understanding, Paul says, but your love that you have for all the saints, your, your growth in your faith isn't just internal. It, it's seen in the world. It's seen out among your relationships. What a powerful encouragement that the church in Ephesus would receive this from the Apostle Paul is saying, hey, I've, I've heard of your faith and I've heard of your love. So when I pray, I don't forget to give thanks to God for what you're doing. What a blessing. What a commendation. Faith in Christ and love for others. And so as we are before this text, thinking about Paul praising God with gratitude, we have to ask this question. Is my life marked by these things? Is your life marked by a growing faith in Christ and a love for all the saints? Is it marked by a striving towards these things, even though we are all frail and weak? By God's grace, we all can and should, as followers of Jesus, be growing in these ways. But some of us, all of us at times, I'm afraid, are not very concerned by, by both of these commendations. Some of us may want to love everyone, but we don't really care about growing in our faith, meaning we don't really care about gaining knowledge or our understanding of the truth. We just want to have fun and be liked and show our love to other people. Others perhaps want to grow in knowledge, but not in a way that fuels their love. Instead, we find it very easy to be unloving and unkind or unconcerned about those around us. And we run the risk of living our lives as though we are superior to others and not in the same desperate need of the gifts of the Spirit that God has given to all of us individually for each other. Please hear me. You need to run from these things. You need to run 
from a mind that is unconcerned about growing in the faith. You need to run from flippant superiority that is unkind and unloving towards one another. We'll see this a little later, but know this. There is a place for struggling believers in the church. Join the club. That's 100% of the membership. But a believer who is unwilling to model charity, to model kindness, to model encouragement and love for their brothers and sisters is factious. It's divisive. And if that's you, in the most gracious way, I can say this, not to shame you, not to make you feel condemnation, but you should feel concern and run once again to the mercies of Jesus who never looks at you with anything other than love. And if you are loving and and, and a kind person, but you have no desire to grow in your knowledge of the word and no desire to grow in the things of God and no desire to grow in your disciplines is what it means to be a follower of Jesus, you should be concerned. Because that love that you're expressing when you say, I love God, you may not be loving the God of Scripture. But what we see here in Ephesus... And what I pray that we would see in our church is the commendation of both faith and love. And it stirs Paul up to praise God and to show gratitude for the church and his prayers. And that's what we want to model too. As we see the faith and love of our brothers and sisters in this room, it should stir us up to praise God and thank him for his work in each of us. And you need to know that like Rasha and I and our interns like regularly think of you In our prayers, we regularly are grateful for you because God is at work here. There's no doubt that God is at work. But we're all needy. We all are in desperate need for God to move among us. But what does Paul think that the church needs? What are those needs that we have? So the next section, the three things that Paul prays for in verses 17 through 19... Number two, Paul's, uh, our needs are illumination, assurance, and power. Illumination, assurance, and power. Paul prays for three things, not an end to persecution, not success in the world, not health or prosperity. He prays for illumination, assurance, and power. Look at verse 17. He says that the the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. More than anything, the church's greatest need, your greatest need is to see God rightly for who he is and to understand his gospel truly for what it is. And to do that, we all need the Spirit of God. Yes, we need godly moms and dads. Yes, we need table leaders and equipping leaders. We need brothers and sisters in the faith who can come alongside us. We need all of those things. But more than all of those combined, infinitely more, we need the Spirit of God to open our eyes 
to give us wisdom, to give us revelation. He reveals and alerts us so that we might comprehend the truth. And when he enlightens the eyes of our hearts, we respond with awe and love for God and love for his word. This is the gift of illumination. This is what Paul is praying for, that the spirit would come and turn the lights on so that we can see what's before us when we open the word, so that we can see what's before us when our brother or our sister is in need or discouraged. Having our eyes opened also leads to the other two needs that we have. So second, Paul prays that we would know what is the hope to which he has called us. In other words, Paul wants you and me to have assurance. Assurance that we are in Christ. We don't have to wander through life wondering whether or not we are saved. Now, now hear me, if, if you wrestle with doubt, if you wrestle with assurance, you are not an anomaly. That is a common thing for Christians. And often our doubts about our salvation, our doubts about assurance of faith is usually because we're, we're growing in the clarity of vision when we look at the sinfulness of our sin, right? It's, it's usually people who struggle with salvation who see their sin as heinous before God. It's usually not the people who are like, ah, my sin's not a big deal, who wrestle with assurance, Instead, it's those people who wrestle because they recognize that our sin is treason against God. So how is it that he could love me? How is it that he could save me? How is it that he could adopt me and delight in me? Paul says we can know. And one beautiful way we can know is by remembering that God has, in verse 18, the riches of of his glorious inheritance in the saints. You see what this means? It means that God views us as his inheritance. God views us as his inheritance. We're not just some obligation that he might toss aside one day when he's bored or upset. We are not anything other than what Jesus longs for when he returns. We are his and he is ours. And by the spirit, we can rest in that truth at every moment. You can have assurance. God will not let you go. Nothing can separate you from his love. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Sometimes we wrestle with the doubt of whether or not we're saved because we've come to grips with the reality of our sin. And the truth of the gospel is, you are no more in need today than you were when you professed faith in Jesus. It's only now you are catching up to the reality that, oh, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for me. That's what that means. In my darkness, in my sorrow, in my sin, in my brokenness, in my pain, in my wicked thoughts, in my temptations, right then, that's the place where God says, you are mine. That leads to the third need that we have. Paul prays for illumination. He prays for assurance. And then thirdly, he prays for power. Look at verse 19. 
what is, so he's saying, you might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Paul uses the phrase immeasurable greatness of his power, but the big word we've used throughout church history is omnipotence. Omnipotence. God is all-powerful. Nothing is too hard for him. He can do all that he sees fit to do. And that power is, for those in Christ, not against us, but toward us, or in us, or for us. The omnipotent God is on our side. This does not mean that we will always ace the test. Does not mean that we will always get the job or be asked to that dance or make things happen the way that we want. Maybe a little bit further in your life, God's omnipotence does not mean that you will get that spouse or have that child or live in that place. But here's what it does mean we can be holy. We can overcome sin. We can display the fruit of the spirit. We can grow in our love for God and his word. We can stand firm against persecution. We can be followers of Jesus. So Paul prays for what the church needs. And what they need is what we need. We need illumination. We need the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened, to be opened, to see the gospel, to see God rightly. We need assurance. We need to know that when my head hits the pillow and I'm thinking of all the things that I've left undone today or all the things that I did that I should not have done today, my head can hit the pillow content when I think about where I am before the Lord. And we need power. We need the power that only God, the omnipotent God, can provide. So let's join him in praying for these things. And not just for ourselves, but for one another. Oh God, remind me of your spirit who enlightens the eyes of my heart, who assures me that I am yours, who empowers me to walk in your ways. Oh God, remind her of your spirit who enlightens the eyes of her heart, who assures her that you are hers and who empowers her to walk in your ways. This prayer leads Paul on a bit of a rabbit trail, however. He gets wrapped up in thinking about that power. So that's where we will go. Last section, number three. God's power in the church. God's power in the church. He says in verse 19 that the immeasurable greatness of God's power is toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. But what do we see and what do we know about that power? Well, first, we see that it's the power that brought Christ out of the grave. Look at verse 20. That power that is toward us who believe, verse 20, he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So don't miss this. If God's power towards Jesus brought life out of death, then you can know and rejoice that his power will lead to your defeat of death once and for all. The sting of death is removed. It's the truth of Romans 8.31 that you can claim for the rest of your life, if God is for us, who can be against us? 
Second, we see that God's power doesn't just resurrect. It exalts. It doesn't just bring out of the grave. It brings up to the heavens. God seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's the end of verse 20. Exalted Christ. Jesus is now King of kings and Lord of lords. And in just a few verses, Paul will write in Ephesians 2 verse 6 that God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places. So if Christ was raised by this power, so will we. And if Christ was exalted by this power, so will we. We don't have to look, therefore, for exaltation in this world anymore. You don't have to look for recognition and honor in this world anymore because you've been promised the exaltation of heaven. The power of God will seat us in the heavenly places with our Savior forever. That's the power that is toward us who believe. Finally, we see that God's power is a power that reigns. Look at verse 22. He put all things under the feet of Jesus, all things under his feet, gave him as head over all things to the church. If Jesus will rule and reign in the power of God, then we will rule and reign as his co-heirs. That promise of the future should inform how we live even now. We don't need to make little kingdoms for ourselves. So your life wrapped up in school or wrapped up in social life or wrapped up on teams is no longer about how can I prop myself up to have control, to have power, to have sovereignty in this little kingdom that I've made. We don't need to step on the necks of others to get ahead in this life. God will give us all things by his mighty power, instead of our own strength. Now, you and I as believers can be freed up to live in our weakness, depending on the Lord for his power, knowing that our weakness and his strength is infinitely more than our strength without his power. Which leads us to the last bit. The church is the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is a tough verse. Let me just read it again. He put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So commentators kind of debate what this last little phrase means. What does it mean that the body of Christ is the fullness of Christ? What Paul means, I believe, is that Christ fills his church. He is the life of the church. In the same way that you and I as bodies will not receive nourishment, will not receive sustaining life without the working of our head, either by taking food and water or by the power of our minds. In the same way, Christ is the head of the church and he fills the church. He is the fullness of the church. He is the source of life in the church. And since he is reigning from heaven, his presence is mediated or brought to bear on the world through his body. 
through the church. So don't miss this. The body of Christ, the church, is the presence of Christ to the world. I'll say that again. The body of Christ, the church, is the presence of Christ to the world. Which means the world will know Christ according to what we tell them. If you want the world to know Jesus, they're going to listen to his body. The body has the opportunity to say the truth about Jesus, but it also has the opportunity to not say the truth. So what do we need? We need unity. We need unity. The church, if it's going to tell the truth about Jesus, must live according to Jesus' own prayer in John 17. Listen, you don't have to turn there, but in John 17, verses 20 and 21, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, that is for the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that's us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, God, I'm praying. Father, I'm praying to you that as you and I are one, that the believers would be one so that as they live as one in the world, the world will know Jesus is the son of God. So then disunity and factiousness and discord and strife in the church tells a lie about Jesus. And it tells a lie to the body and it tells a lie to the world. By the grace of God, we need to see that we are all called to unity, which comes through a shared faith in Christ and a shared love for one another. Exactly what Paul sees in the church in Ephesus. I've seen your faith in the Lord Jesus. I've seen your love for one another. And so I praise God. And now we know he's praising God because they're telling the truth. We have the eyes of our hearts opened and the assurance of who we are in Christ. So let's ask God to give us the power to live together in a way that shows the world who Jesus really is. It's what Paul prays for, for the church in Ephesus, and it's what we will pray for right now. Let's pray.